This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Freedom has been at the core of humanity's struggles for centuries. From revolutions and wars to social movements and uprisings, the pursuit of freedom and democracy has been a constant battle. For the Jewish people, this fight has taken on a particular significance, as they have endured persecution, genocide, and exile in the pursuit of personal and national freedom. In his upcoming book, And None Shall Make Them Afraid, author Rick Richman explores the stories of eight remarkable Jewish figures who embody the revolutionary movements of Americanism and Zionism. These two ideologies with freedom and democracy at their core were instrumental in the fight against the murderous ideologies of communism, fascism, and anti-Semitism in the 20th century. Richmond's book showcases the lives and achievements of individuals like Theodore Herzl, Golda Meir, and Benjamin Netanyahu, whose legacies have shaped the course of history. We are honored to have Rick join us on Two Nice Jewish Boys to discuss the enduring commonalities between Americanism and Zionism and the importance of upholding freedom in the U.S. A Harvard-educated professor and accomplished writer, Rick has written for prestigious publications such as Commentary and The New York Sun, and his first book was a bestseller. We're honored to have him with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you, Rick? Very good and honored to be here as well. So where should we start? Um, is there really that much commonality between Americanism and Zionism? Well, there's even more than commonality. I think it almost rises to the level of an alliance. Um, Americanism is kind of the civil religion of the United States uh, from the very beginning and certainly in the 20th century. And it was the movement to bring freedom and democracy, not only to the United States, but to everybody in the world. And Zionism was the effort to create a free and democratic state. So it really was an example of Americanism succeeding in the 20th century. No, nothing succeeded uh, more than Zionism. And as you mentioned, uh, communism, fascism, national socialism, anti-Semitism killed tens of millions of people. And Zionism created a home for a people throughout the world. And we know what Israel is today. It's a, it was a miracle 75 years ago in its creation. It's a miracle that it has survived and succeeded today. It's true. I mean, we were just talking before the show. Noor has an amazing view of Tel Aviv. And I, in my infinite boredom, was thinking, I wonder what a 2003 skyline of Tel Aviv looked like. And I think it's it's amazing. It's probably one of the very few cities in the world who have like undergone such a crazy change because of the freedom and the democracy that thrive here. It it just it just boomed in the beginning of the 2000s with it with the high tech revolution, and it just completely changed the face of the city. And, and you know, in Herzl created the modern Zionist movement and wrote the Jewish state and held uh, six Zionist conferences year after year. Tel Aviv wasn't even a city. It, 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 was, it was vacant land at the time. 
And yeah. so you look at what it is now, Herzl had to imagine such a thing. There was not a city of Tel Aviv at that moment. So how did you embark uh, on writing this book? Like how, what was the, like the trigger to write it and how did you go about it? Well, I got sort of dissatisfied with these kind of histories of Zionism, histories of Israel that were from 30,000 feet up. And I wanted to sort of bring it down all the way to ground level with the individuals who had created this, this miracle. I wanted to know how they did it. And so I started looking at things like Herzl's speeches, Jabotinsky's essays, uh, Heim Weitzman's uh, books, uh, and uh, I, be, you know, going going back before 1967, back before 1948, back before the Holocaust, back before the 20s and the 30s, and see how it all began by looking at the lives of the individuals who created it. And what I found was, first of all, it was absolutely fascinating because these people are all historic figures, but they didn't know they were historic figures when they started out. They were just individuals who were trying to do something about a situation that they saw. But when I, I started looking at each of these individuals, it almost became like there was an invisible baton handed from individual to individual, from generation to generation. And it was a story that was fascinating in its individual chapters. Each person in this book is an extraordinary and fascinating person. But the sort of flow of history through individuals gives it an immediacy that you don't get from a 30,000-foot book about politics or economics or diplomacy, international relations. You really need to come down to the people who did it, starting with Herzl, and as you said, going all the way through through uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, all the way up to the present. It's a remarkable story that such a small people, a, a, a statistical blip in world population, is able to create uh, a state <laughs> that hasn't been there uh, in the place it stood for centuries, but hasn't been there for millennia. But they did it, and the story of how they did it and kept it going and enabled it to survive, I think it's encapsulated in, in two moments. One is Herzl, who's 35 years old. He's the literary editor of the New Free Press, a, a prominent Viennese newspaper. And he has the idea for a Jewish state and people think he's crazy. Some of the people think he's literally crazy, but everyone thinks he's this is this is nuts. This is impossible. Now, flash forward 125 years, and there's the Israeli prime minister speaking to a joint meeting of Congress for the third time. No world leader has ever done that, with the exception of Winston Churchill. And 125 years may seem like a long time, but it's barely more. It's a it's a it's a one and a half individual lifetimes, uh, but from that moment back in 1895 to that moment when Benjamin Netanyahu stood before a joint meeting of the United States Congress, the superpower of the world, for the third time, um, it, it, it is I, I'm not sure there is anything in history that quite approximates that level of achievement 
in that short of historical time. And certainly for 3,500 years of Jewish history, it's an amazing development. And I think we don't we don't fully appreciate it. You know, we, we live with the benefit of it. We have never known a world that where we didn't have the benefit of it. But it was the effort, not in my opinion, of these flows of history, but of individuals who who decided to do something. And when you see that it that it, one individual did something that went to another, that went to another, that went to another, and all of a sudden, in historical time, all of a sudden, there's Israel, one of the most remarkable states in the world, and speaking before the United States Congress. So it's an incredible story. We should all know it. I didn't know it before I wrote the book. Really? I said to my wife, all, all the time when I was writing the book, I, I would say, my God, I got to I got a great secular education, a very good Jewish education. I didn't know these stories. How come? Why didn't my teachers teach them to me? And the, the answer turns out my teachers didn't know them either. So there was no way for them to teach them. We've sort of forgotten them. And my book is actually an attempt to bring them back into common knowledge because so they're fascinating stories and we all ought to know them. So can you share with us maybe, let's start at the beginning, because it's funny, you mentioned Benjamin Netanyahu and his address to Congress, which was highly controversial. I think all three times were pretty highly controversial. Um, but you mentioned that, and I wondered, you know, how controversial Theodore Herzl was as a figure in his time, because today he's pretty much accepted as the founder of Zionism. He, everybody can kind of, everybody can get behind the idea of, of Theodore except Herzl. Except BDS, maybe. Yeah, except for BDS. But everybody who's, you know, who lives here, who's Jewish. No one's like, oh, Herzl, that guy was, uh, was you know, no good. But I'm wondering how, how controversial was he in his time? You mentioned he was crazy. Maybe you can give us a story of Theodore Herzl that you shared in your book that you, you didn't know before you wrote it. Sure. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I grew up thinking, you know, Herzl, very impressive guy, world-class beard, comes up with the idea of a Jewish state, <laughs> seems pretty obvious STDs. to me. <laughs> but when you when when you go back and look at what what was happening when he comes up with this idea, Orthodox rabbis you know rejected it because he was he was rushing the end, pushing the end. You should wait for the Messiah, mm -hmm. and Reform rabbis rejected it because they thought that Judaism was a modern religion of reason. This stuff from two millennia ago when. Uh, when the Jews had a state was something in the past. They didn't want it back. And then you had secular Jews who were happy with their situation in the states they resided, and they certainly didn't want claims of dual loyalty. They were afraid of Zionism. You had socialist Jews, and there were a lot of them, who thought nationalism is something that is really counter-revolutionary. We don't want that. We want an international approach. Um, and then you had Jewish public figures who all, virtually virtually all, there were some exceptions, but virtually all thought that this whole idea is, is absurd. So across the board, across the religious board, across the political board, across the cultural board of, of, uh, of Jewish movements, left to right, uh, uh, you had people who thought this, this is not going to go anywhere. And then Herzl, you know, you would think, well, okay, maybe he had some financial support, maybe he had some organizational support, uh, maybe he had a movement. No, 
He didn't have that at all. He had his personal resources, which he depleted all the way down to poverty in order to devote himself to Zionism. But he had no financial backing. He had no Jewish organizations that were willing to support him. He simply had this idea, 35 years old, devotes himself to it for the next nine years and doesn't tell anybody that, A, he's got a heart condition and he's endangering his, his actual physical health by doing this. And secondly, he's employed with a very prestigious paper, a sort of the New York Times of the European continent at the time. And his the owners of the paper are two Jews who are very anti-Zionism once it starts. They, they, they're fine there in Vienna. They don't want to rock the boat. And they tell Herzl, their, their young literary editor, don't do this. This is an embarrassment to us. And Herzl says, I, I, I've got to do it. And he risked his job and he risked his financial support for his family in order to do this. He does it for nine years and then he dies suddenly at the age of 44. And you, so yes, I had the same reaction that I think most people had today. You know, great guy, apparently he was tall and charismatic, tall at the time being five foot nine. And uh, he, you know, perhaps gave some great speeches, but of course, Jewish state, gotta have a Jewish state, it wasn't such a great idea. In fact, it was a superhuman effort um, that, you know, we, we, we don't fully appreciate what it took to start and to stay with this movement and create the first, the first Zionist national, the first Zionist, um, Congress in Basel, Switzerland, he had to hold it in Basel because the Jewish community in Munich, which is where he wanted to have it, didn't want to host it really? because thought it would create problems. Munich was a, was a, a, a good place where Jews could get to from, from various places. Basel was, was out of the way, but he had to switch it there because he couldn't get support from the Jewish community in Munich to hold it there. So the, the sort of effort that Herzl put into this um, is just beyond extraordinary. And it, without him starting it, you know, we, we wouldn't have what we had today. I, so, I want to get to some of the other figures, but I do want to ask, I want to touch on Herzl like one more before we move on. Um, what is the, like the pinnacle you mentioned, the World Zionist Congress, the pinnacle of his lifetime, right? I guess in terms of Zion, in, in terms of the Zionist movement, like that's the most he saw, the biggest success he probably saw in his lifetime. Can you tell us a little bit of how that came about, what it represented? Were there people like, you know, were there people still against it at the World Zionist Con uh, Congress? Like, wh what went down there? He had. Uh, it was truly a World Zionist Congress because he sent out invitations. He got more than two hundred delegates to come from 20 different countries or, or regions, a lot from Russia, which was, had a huge Jewish population. And they showed some courage to simply attend because the, the czar found out there was a nationalist movement that was being supported by Jews in Russia. Nothing good would happen to those individuals. And five people came from the United States, including Rosa Schonenschein, who was um, a, a woman who, a Rebetzin, who had started the first Jewish woman's newspaper 
in the 1890s in America, and she went to the Congress. Now, to get to the Congress, she was in St. Louis. She had to go to Chicago. She had to get from Chicago to New York. She had to get across the ocean. We're not, we're talking, there's no airplanes. Across the ocean, she has to get all the way across Europe to go to Basel for a three-day conference. And she, she keeps a diary, and the diary is available. You can see it on the internet in its actual form. She printed it. And she was excited about it. And she says, this is a movement I think maybe is going to go somewhere, which obviously was an understatement. And everybody got excited by it. After, after Herzl gave his speech, according to the, the official transcript of the first Zionist conference, 15 minutes of applause, cheers, came Cane, you know, taking your cane and hitting the floor, which apparently was the way you... you, you can we bring them back? back Sorry, days. side note. Can we bring the canes and hitting with them on the floor back, please? <laughs> yeah. First, we got to get your um, cane. <laughs> yes. and, and, and Herzl, you know, was, was a playwright and a journalist. And what he understood was you had to put on a production and you had to get the newspapers, the media of the, of the time, to cover it. And he did that, and he insisted that everybody wear formal wear at the at the first Zionist uh, conference because he thought he was creating the assembly for a future Jewish state, and he wanted people proud and looking good. And in fact, the New York Times covered it with with three news articles during that first Zionist conference, and the big. Thing at the time in terms of media was photography. You could take photographs and, and show what was happening. And you had telegraph and wire so you could produce news stories that were current and exciting. And that's what Herzl did single-handedly. He had the support of Max Nordau, who was the most prominent public intellectual at the time and gave a great speech. But it was Herzl's efforts and vision to think about how to put on this production in a way that the world would cover it so that other people would learn about it. That was the extraordinary thing that he did. And as I said, you know, he was, he, he was an individual Jew from Vienna, born in Budapest. Nobody in the, in the, in the Western world, in, by which I mean the United States and, and, and England, really had heard of the guy. Um, but that's what he put on. And um, what, because in, in, in 1900, when was it exactly the first... Uh... First one was it was eighteen ninety seven. Eighteen ninety seven. So uh, no world wars yet, and uh, the first world war is like twenty years uh, away, and uh, right. Turkey has been ruling the Ottoman Empire has been ruling for centuries. So what was the practical? And this is really this is the last question about Herzl. But what was the? If you can quickly tell us what was the practical plan? Like what was the? How was he about to do that with Turkey? controlling that plan. So this, this was a world in which their empires ruled the world. You had the British Empire, the German Empire, Austria-Hungarian Empire, Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled Palestine for 400 years. And what Herzl did with each of these empires is he went to them and he said, look, your own interests are in producing a Jewish state uh, that would be favorable to your interests. And he went to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire 
and the Ottoman Empire was called the sick the 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 the, the sick man of Europe because of its financial situation. And he said, look. Jews throughout the world can help you refinance your staggering debt. So why don't you create, help create a Jewish uh, homeland there, and Jews will help you out of your dire financial situation. He went to the Russian Empire, and he said, look, you, you have this huge Jewish population, and they're restive, and you don't want separate nationalities. Why don't you let them go to Palestine and form a homeland there? He went to the other empires and said, this is the this is the way to get to the Suez Canal or to India. The trade routes are there. You really need an entity there that is favorable to your own interests. So one by one, he went to each of these empires and tried to uh, explain to them uh, both that they had their interests and other empires had their own and they should act first before the other empires did. So he tried um amazingly to just go from king to princes to sultans to czars everybody and he went in there and talked to them and that and that's what he did single salesman lobby probably probably would have worked in sales and high tech if he if he lived today yeah (laughs) and and what and one more point that's really interesting rosa shonenshine the the rebetzin who came all the way from america from the midwest when, uh, uh, her one complaint uh, about the exciting first Zionist conference was that women couldn't vote. They could be delegates. There were about 20 w- women there who were delegates, but they couldn't vote. And she went, she said, next year, when we do this again, women should vote. And Herzl agreed. And so women voted in the second Zionist conference in 1898. It took 20 more years in the United States for women to get the vote. So 20 years before women got the vote in the United States, women were voting delegates in the, in, in Zionism in the Zionist conference. It was a progressive, liberal, progressive movement that was trying to take the best of liberalism, by which I mean individual rights and, and the ability to form a state for a people, not be subject to an empire. And he miraculously combined it into these incredible productions that energized people to go ahead and devote their lives to this which which they did speaking speaking of feminism and uh women's rights some i don't know 50 more 60 almost 60 years ago um uh, Israel before the United States has even yet to have uh, uh, a female president Israel had a female prime minister who you also wrote about in your book. So maybe we can jump ahead uh, and talk a bit about Golda Meir and her story. Uh, Golda Meir is another one who we remember, at least I remember, um, you know, at the end of her remarkable career. So she's this 71-year-old grandmother who becomes prime minister of the state of Israel. And what I did in the book instead is go all the way back to the beginning. She was born in Kiev in the Ukraine, but it was part of the Russian Empire at the time. And after the pogroms in the early part of the the first part of the 20th century, her father leaves her mother and her and her and her and her three sisters and goes to America to try and find a job. He finally gets one in Milwaukee in Wisconsin. He's a carpenter. Three years later, he sends for his wife and their three children, including Golda. 
they walk to the border. They use what little money they had to pay border bribes to get out of the country. Somehow they make it to America. Gold is eight years old. She sees her father there, and he's marching in parades. Their workers are having parades. It's a socialist town. At the time, they have a socialist mayor. They have a socialist congressman. And she sees her father, and there are policemen on horseback, and they're on either side of the marchers. And to her amazement, they're protecting the marchers. In Russia, if they had marched, they had tried to march, there would be policemen on horseback whipping them. And so here in America was this new world. And so she went from an anti-Semitic autocracy to the most free, and in her, in her view, idealistic, because she believed in socialism, place in the world, and, and even in America. And then the Balfour Declaration comes along. She's 21 years old, and she decides she wants to give it all up and go to Palestine to help create a Jewish homeland and perhaps show that socialism can work if you've got kibbutzim uh, at a micro level and you've got Histadrut, a labor federation running the country at a macro level. And she gets married to a fellow socialist, Morris Meyerson, becomes not Golda Maybevich, but Golda Meyerson, and she conditions the marriage on him agreeing to go to Palestine. And he didn't want to go. He was a socialist. Things were great in Milwaukee, but he loved Golda. And so they went. And so she went in 1921. So when I catch up with her, and she's the 71-year-old grandmother, she's been there 50 years. And she was involved in Zionism because when she was in her 30s, coming back to America to raise money for a Jewish state, she was a huge asset to Zionism because she could speak to Americans in unaccented English. She was a young, attractive woman speaking unaccented American English. She had a bit of a and Jewish accent, though. She, she was the first BB. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah. she has a bit of a Jewish and, accent, right? Well, well, Ben Gurion later said about her when when she, as all all the cabinet members did, change their names to more Israeli names. She became Golda Meir instead of Golda Meyerson, and uh, uh, Ben Gurion said she was the best man in his cabinet, and she was always <laughs> amused. She was always amused that that was the highest praise that Ben Gurion could think for her, and the praise that was really. <laughs> really more on point was that, and Ben Gurion said this, she was the woman who raised the money that created the Jewish state. She raised $50 million in, in the independence war, 1940 uh, dollars to, to, and you know, Zionism was not a rich movement. Uh, the philanthropists thought it was going to fail too. So she raised it by going and you look at her travel schedule in, in, in the 1930s, she would go to, six or seven cities across America and then three cities in Canada raising money and then going back to Palestine. As what? What was her like official title? Who was she working for? What was she what was she doing then? She was just part of the labor Zionist movement and she was there there were a handful of men and basically one woman her uh involved in it and she would just be sent by I'm not sure if Histadrut was actually the, the Zionist Histadrut. Yeah, I think. Is the... Yeah, 
but she was she believed in labor Zionism and uh, and socialism, and that's what she wanted to do and create. And uh, amazingly, she did it. And um, uh, and and later on, you know, at age seventy one, she becomes a prime minister. And fifty years after she made that decision to give up everything in America and go to uh, and go to Palestine. Yeah, and um, I think she's one of the two women who signed the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, right. Yeah, yes. Um, uh, uh, the other one, the other ones are are are, are escaping me, but yeah, yeah there were there were. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like so 50 women, men you know, and women uh, have been in, yeah, and two women. Right. Mm-hmm. Women have been involved from the very beginning, from from the beginning wanna... of the Herzl's movement all the way through. Yeah. Uh, let's touch. You, 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 you write about eight people, right, in the book. Correct. So just for the record, who are the eight? Uh, well, we go from Herzl to Louis Brandeis. Brandeis everybody in America re- uh, remembers as uh, one of the greatest Supreme Court justices he served for, for, for 23 years. Uh, he wrote landmark opinions. But before he became a, a, a justice of the Supreme Court, he was the person who really, he didn't create, but he was the one who made the American Zionist movement a factor to be considered. Uh, because Jacob de Haas, who was Herzl's lieutenant in England, moved to America, met Brandeis, told him about Herzl, and Brandeis was, he had gotten the highest grades at Harvard Law School that England had ever gotten. He was a famous lawyer. Uh, he was a wealthy lawyer, but he had contributed nothing virtually to Jewish organizations. He had no contact with any kind of, of, of Judaism or, or, or Jewish organizations. Uh, he, was, he hadn't been bar mitzvah, uh, but but Jacob de Haas got him interested in this guy Herzl, and uh, uh, Brandeis spent a summer reading everything he could about Zionism, and he contributes his name, his time, and very large wealth to the Zionist movement in America. And so it's this baton that somehow gets across The Atlantic Ocean carried by uh, Jacob de Haas who's 25 years old when he meets Herzl and he's 45 when he meets uh, when he meets Brandeis uh, or, the, or the early 40s but he sort of hands it to Brandeis and Brandeis carries it and the um, uh, Zionism which was a minuscule had maybe had 15,000 and several million uh, uh, American Jews at the time uh, He, he quintuples in a few years uh, the membership in the American Zionist movement because if, if Brandeis gave his name to it, it was a movement in America to be considered. So uh, we go from there uh, back to Heim Weitzman and the Balfour Declaration and the communications between Weitzman and Brandeis at the time. Brandeis was a close confidant of President Wilson. And, and uh, Weitzman knew Balfour and um, uh, Lloyd George personally. And then an incredible story, a year after the Balfour Declaration, Weitzman go, and World War I is still being fought. Its outcome is not yet clear. There's a, a Arab revolt going on against the Ottoman Empire. And Jabotinsky has formed a Jewish legion to support the Brits in 
uh, Palestine against the Ottoman Empire and, and, and their ally, Germany. And so you've got Jews fighting and Arabs fighting against the Ottomans, and Weizmann takes a five-day trip. He's in Jerusalem at the time. You could just go across the Jordan and onto the plains of uh, of Jordan, which is where Faisal bin Hussein, who was the commander-in-chief of the Arab revolt, has got his camp, his military camp in a tent. You just go right across, but you can't because there are, there are uh, Ottoman Turkish troops who occupy the Jordan Valley. So Weizmann has got to go from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, take a train from Tel Aviv to Cairo, get on a dilapidated boat to go around the Sinai Peninsula, get into a car, which breaks down as he goes up towards the Jordanian plains. He then goes on camel. Finally, <laughs> he has to go by foot. It takes him five days, and he spends an, uh, close to an hour, three quarters of an hour, in the tent of Faisal bin Hussein. And they come to an understanding that Zionism will support Arab nationality, and Faisal and his father, who is the ruler of Medina and, and Mecca, the two holiest places in, in, in Islam, will support immigration of Jews into Palestine and the, the Balfour Declaration, which, which has just been signed a year before. And it became a lifelong friendship. And, and, and two years later, they both go to the Paris Peace Conference and they make complimentary presentations. And Faisal, uh, Faisal says, <laughs> he gives a speech in London when he arrives there and he says, look, we Arabs want uh, Arab nationalism and it would be dishonorable for us not to welcome the Jews back home. And we do. And Mr. Weitzman and I are doing complementary movements of freedom for our peoples, and nothing is contradictory about what Weitzman is doing and what I'm doing. And at the time, Jerusalem, since really since the 1880s, has had a majority Jewish population. The country itself is 90% Arab, but Jerusalem is majority Jewish. And even with 90% Arab, you're talking about way less than a million, maybe you know, closer to half a million, in an area which, as we know today, has 12 million or more people in it. So it's really a frontier at the time, and there was room for both national movements. And Weizmann and Faisal sign an agreement, and it's really the first two-state solution 125 years ago. And it's very unfortunate, for, particularly for the for the Palestinian Arabs, very unfortunate that they could have had a state back then. They could have had a state in 1937 with the Peel Commission, 1947 with the UN resolution, which was a resolution not only recommending a Jewish state, but recommending with the partition an Arab state as well. So Israel celebrating its 75th anniversary today. The Palestinian Arabs could have could have been celebrating the 75th anniversary of their own state. As they say in Hebrew, they never miss a chance to miss a chance. Uh, but this Hussein yeah. was the first king of Jordan? No, uh, He's the Me Mecca and Medina, right? No, but then he became the king, the, ah. the, the, right? It's Hussein. Yeah, yeah it, yeah, it became part of Saudi Arabia today. today so it's not um, the same family that ruled uh, Jordan? 
Well, uh, Faisal, with whom yeah. White's met, eventually became the ruler of Iraq. Oh, of Iraq, his okay. Brother, his brother, Abdullah, became the ruler okay. of Jordan. Because it all, ties, Jordan, it yeah. all ties up because the son of Abdullah, I think, uh, because you have... Uh, Today, the king, you have his father, and then his grandfather was the first king. Uh, yeah, and yeah, the second yes, king, yes, that also all, the all second the king the... who made the peace agreement in 73, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, he came to warn Golda. Do you know the story? Yes. Yes. He, yes. he so secretly came with helicopter, are... and we didn't have peace with Jordan. Well, eventually we, eventually we did. No, but eventually, in 73, you know, he came no, to no, Yeah, in yeah. 73, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct um, the, that there were secret meetings trying to keep Jordan, you know, out of a war, both, both in 67, in 67 as well. They tried mm -hmm. to, they tried, they went to Jordan and said, stay out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is not in the war. We're, we're, we're dealing with yeah. Egypt and others, but not you. And uh, 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 Jordan came in, and we know what happened in 1967. But but Israel, particularly Golda, tried to keep 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 them out. We could go on and on for hours, but I think we have to touch on one last uh, yes. character in the book, which <laughs> is pretty relevant today. Yes, um, and which is why your book will be canceled. I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by certain people. By certain people. Uh, not by us, though. But uh, we have to touch on one last character, which is Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, so tell us a bit how he ties into the story and why you picked him. Well, I pick him uh, because I start really with uh, with an individual, which is Ron Dermer, who in, in various publications in Israel has been called Bibi's Brain. Um, they, they formed an, a, a, an unusual alliance, but Dermer was a, an American Jew, grew up in Miami Beach, and um, went to, to the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League School, Wharton School of Business, was on his way to um, London to study uh, at Oxford or Cambridge, and uh, through a series of contacts, he meets Sharansky, who wants to start a party in Israel for Russian immigrants. So he helps him, and um, by that process, he comes in contact with Bibi Netanyahu. And Netanyahu wants Dermer to be the finance minister in Washington, which requires Dermer to give up his American citizenship, which he does. You sign a one-page form if you're going to do it. It's finance a minister, form not in Washington. Say it again, please. He said he, Bibi wanted Dermot to be the finance minister in Washington, not in Washington. In, Was in Washington, and then eventually the, the, the ambassador. But to be a finance minister for Israel in the United States, you have to give up your American citizenship because under U.S. law, you can't be a U.S. citizen and be a foreign diplomat and have constitutional and other legal protections of an American citizen, so you got to give it up. So Dermer not only gives it up, signs is one page, but attaches a 675 page, a 675 word essay called Proud to Have Been an American. And it's a beautiful essay about bringing American values um, to uh, Israel, which is struggling to um, 
to achieve the freedom and security that Americans take for granted. And Dermer forms this relationship with, uh, with Bibi. And in 2015, when the Iran deal was uh, on the table, uh, and the question was whether Netanyahu should go to Congress and oppose an American president on his chief foreign policy objective and the ruling Democratic Party, which supported the president, uh, virtually everybody told Netanyahu not to do it. Um, uh, the former Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren, opposed it. Various American prominent friends of Bibi told him not to do it. Uh, his own staff, most of them said, don't do it. Dermer said, do it. And he said, the reason you should do it is when you have the opportunity, you know, we, we were people without a voice. This is an existential threat. When we are given the opportunity to speak, you have to speak. And Dermer later said he he received, he, he had a meeting with a Czech um, uh, ambassador, and the Czech ambassador said, "And what's going on with this speech? I mean, Bibi is antagonizing everybody." And Dermer said to him, "I've got two I've got two questions for you. In 1930, 1938, if your prime minister." Uh, your president had been given the opportunity to go to parliament and speak against the Munich agreement, even though Chamberlain uh, would be angry, would you have done it? And second question, if you didn't, would your people have ever forgiven you? So Bibi went and gave the speech, and it's a remarkable speech, remarkable that he did it, and he didn't succeed with President Obama, but it was part of the success with President Trump um, about withdrawing from an agreement that, that uh, Netanyahu and I think across the board politically in Israel think is a bad agreement and something that might be good as long as it lasted, but had sunset provisions that would enable Iran to, to have a nuclear weapon in very short order once the sunset provisions took effect. So Dermer and Netanyahu together did things that perhaps no other U.S. ambassador and no other um, Israeli prime minister would have done. They elevated the Iran deal. Um, and it didn't stop it during Obama's administration, but Bibi in his recent uh, autobiography um, says that Chuck Schumer, who is the Democratic majority leader, came to him and said, well, you changed four votes in, among the Democrats. And so there were only 42 senators out of 100 who voted for the Iran deal. It didn't even get majority support, much less the two-thirds vote you're supposed to get for a treaty under the U.S. Constitution. So it was part of the process of bringing the Iran deal to the attention of the American people and showing that it was in Israel's point of view, an existential threat that had to be addressed, not ratified, not approved. Um, and so it was a fairly important moment. Uh, and obviously, the story is still playing out. Amazing. So let's plug the book once again. Please say everything you can about it. Well, the book, yeah, the book, you know, the, sub, the, the book, the, the title of the book is uh, and none shall make them afraid, which is a, a very evocative and resonant phrase from the Bible, it, it, the Hebrew Bible. It appears five different times. It's not just in in Micah. It's it's in 
Ezekiel, it's in Jeremiah, it's in uh, Isaiah. And what it really means is, uh, it means several things in, in connection with my book. First of all, these were eight people who were not afraid. But also it's a biblical promise to the Jewish people that none shall make them afraid. So it's a, a promise to the uh, to, uh, to the Jews of a state. It's a promise to the individuals who devoted their lives to it. So what I hope people will take away from it is that individuals matter and every individual can make a contribution. None of these people thought they were historic individuals when they started out, but they became them. And we can't all be historic individuals, obviously, but we can contribute, we can do something. And it's a big mistake to think that because you can't do everything, or maybe because you can't uh, do anything, you do nothing. If people do nothing, you know, bad things will happen. So this is an attempt to tell people about eight people. You can read any chapter any in any order, but and it's fascinating, and you'll learn things you didn't know. But if you read it chapter by chapter, you'll be amazed, I think, of this process of history that started from scratch and resulted in a state that is, um, even with all the problems that it has, is addressing them in a democracy with everybody having the right to vote and speak without fear and uh, uh, has provided a homeland for everybody from Europe after the Holocaust to the people from the Arab countries when they were expelled to anybody who was in danger. It's a modern miracle. And telling the story through the through eight of the individuals, they're not the only eight, but at least eight uh, who created it, I think will give people an appreciation of the heritage they've, they've been given and the need to keep it going. Amazing. Incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you much, so much. Rick. And this book sounds amazing. And uh, thanks. People, people can find it on Amazon. Is there a, is there like a... Hardcover, e Kindle version. There's an ebook yeah, version? Hard, hardcover. There's an audio book. There's a, a, a oh. Kindle ebook. Um, however you read or listen to books, it, it, it's there for you. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, uh, amazing. I think, I think you'll enjoy it. Amazing. And if you enjoy that, you have two other books, right? The first one, as we mentioned, was a bestseller. Yeah, the first one was called Racing Against History, the 1940 campaign for a Jewish army to, to fight Hitler. And um, it, it, it's the story of 1940 about how Weitzman, Jabotinsky, Ben-Gurion, all three of them came to the United States in 1940 when the United States was in deep in isolation. It's the first year, first full year of World War II to try and support, get public opinion to support the creation of a Jewish army to join the fight. And the remarkable thing about the story is that the three of them were there for months at a time. There wasn't a month in 1940 when there wasn't one of the three great leaders of the left, right, and center of Zionism in America. And the remarkable thing is they weren't talking to each other. And by not talking to each other, I mean, they weren't on speaking terms. <laughs> they, 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 they and, and, and we're a small people, and we have got three great leaders, and they're not even on speaking terms. It's it's an old Jewish story. It's a new Jewish story, continual Jewish story. But it, what it gives you is a sense of uh, there's there's a saying that, that some historian came up with that back in those years, 
the Jews were powerless, but they were not passive. And it will give people who read Racing Against History a sense of the incredible um, uh, commitment left, right, and center of Zionism made to try and do something and not simply stand by. So it's part of our heritage, and bo both books are really an attempt to bring in story form through individuals the incredible heritage that we've inherited. Thank you so much, Rick, and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so you. much. Guys, see you on the next okay. episode. Bye-bye.